This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Thanks for inviting me out tonight, Franny. Of course. I'm going to miss you when you go back to the Jersey Shore in a few days. Yeah. Dolores? What is it? The shore just... Did something happen down there? I... My stop's right up here. Are you okay? I'll be fine if I make it home before curfew. If something else is wrong, you know you can tell me. Well... Good night, Franny. Eleven fifty-seven. I'm gonna make it just under the wire. Hey, I don't want any. Just before midnight on July eleventh, nineteen seventy-two, seventeen-year-old Dolores Della Pena was abducted and murdered. The mystery surrounding her disappearance haunts Philadelphia to this day. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories on the ParCast Network. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. This is our episode on Dolores Della Pena. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of Parcast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. On the night of July 11th, 1972, Ralph and Helen Della Pena were waiting up for their teenage daughter, Dolores, 
to return to their home in the Tacconi section of Philadelphia. But Dolores's midnight curfew came and went, and she was nowhere to be found. Dolores had disappeared. Eleven long days passed before her parents learned that their daughter had been brutally murdered. In the summer of 1972, 17-year-old Dolores de la Pena had her whole life ahead of her. She had just graduated with honors from St. Hubert's Catholic High School and was planning on starting a job that September at Nazareth Hospital as an x-ray technician. She was described by her classmates and family as a nice girl, the quiet type who usually only spoke when spoken to. She came from a close-knit Italian-American family and had a good relationship with her parents. The Della Pena family lived in a working-class section of Philadelphia called Tacconi, which is located about eight miles northeast from downtown. The area is probably best known for the Tacconi-Palmyra Bridge connecting Pennsylvania to New Jersey. The Della Penas lived a pretty comfortable and happy life. Dolores's father, Ralph, was a chemist. She also had a brother, Ralph Jr., who was 19 when Dolores went missing. Though he had already started a family of his own, he and his sister remained close. After Dolores graduated from high school in the spring of 1972, her parents gave her money to rent a cottage apartment in Wildwood Crest, New Jersey, along with three other girls. Her time staying on Forget-Me-Not Lane was supposed to be one last summer blast before adulthood set in. Soon after moving in, Dolores confided in her brother that the apartment wasn't as fun as she had hoped it would be. She tried to get out of the apartment as much as she could. When she found out her parents were planning a trip to Disney World, she insisted on going along. She had a great time at Disney World, and yet despite her misgivings, she had every intention of returning to the cottage rental in New Jersey. On July 11, 1972, the day after the family returned from Disney World, Dolores helped her mother do laundry, played a few songs on the family's organ, and touched up her nails with dark red nail polish. That night, Ralph Delapena dropped Dolores off at her friend's house. For the sake of her friend's anonymity, we'll call her Franny. Dolores and Franny hitchhiked their way to Franny's fiancé's place. Her fiancé lived in the Kensington section of Philadelphia, roughly seven miles away from the Della Pena's home. Once they had arrived at his place, they spent the evening talking mostly about records. When they were ready to return home, Franny and Dolores got on the train together. But Dolores had to catch a trolley to get to her house, so the girls parted ways. The Route 56 trolley motorman, Joseph Kilcoin, remembered picking up a girl matching Dolores' description at 11.39 p.m. on the night of July 11, 1972. He dropped her off at her stop between 11.50 and 11.55 p.m. Kilcoin would later recall that as he approached the stop, he looked back and thought that the train was empty. He couldn't see any passengers until Dolores popped up out of her seat. She had been slouching down below the windows. Because of this, police theorized that she may have been hiding from a motorist who was following the train. Of course, it was only a hunch. Kilcoin, the only witness on the train, hadn't seen anyone following them. Once Dolores got off the trolley, her house was only four blocks away, where her parents were still up waiting for her return. 
Ralph, do you see her outside? No one's out there. It's one in the morning, and it's not like Dolores to be late. I know my daughter. She'd call rather than let us worry. Well, maybe she couldn't get to the phone, or, or there was a problem with the train. What if something happened to her? We need to call the police. Helen, calm down. We can't panic. It doesn't feel right, Ralph. Something's not right. We don't know exactly when the Delapenas contacted the police, but we do know that news of her kidnapping appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer on July 14, 1972, three days after she went missing. Police quickly canvassed the area, going door-to-door and questioning 35 of Dolores's relatives, friends, and acquaintances about her disappearance. The case grew more frightening when several of the Delapena's neighbors told police that they had heard screams around midnight. At least six of these witnesses had even seen Dolores's abduction firsthand. Unfortunately, all six witnesses claimed they saw different things. One witness reported seeing three men. Another said they only saw one man. Several witnesses reported seeing Dolores be dragged across the street. One resident said she saw several men strike a girl and put her in a car at an intersection. And yet, for all of these varied reports, not a single witness called the police that night. Captain Pearson, who was one of the investigators, would later call this out as a tragic mistake. If the police had been called earlier, Dolores might have been saved. Some of the witnesses had assumed that Dolores's abduction was simply a domestic dispute. Others had simply been too afraid to speak out at the time. Officers investigated the area and found spots of blood on the pavement about a block away from Dolores's home. They also found Dolores's jacket and her crucifix near the blood. Despite all this evidence, police had few clues and no leads to follow in their investigation. They had no suspect, and they had no idea as to whether or not she'd been taken by someone she knew or if she had been abducted by a random attacker. The Delapenas held out hope, praying that she would return home. But on July 22, 1972, 11 days after Dolores went missing, there was a gruesome finding which would bring that hope to an end. What do you see, Yuki? Is it a rabbit? Ugh. Oh, God, what's that smell? What is that, Yuki? A doll or something? Who would tear apart a... Oh, no. It certainly wasn't a doll. The arms and torso of a woman were discovered in the woods of Jackson Township, New Jersey, about 50 miles from where Dolores went missing in Philadelphia. The arms were not attached to the torso, and the head and legs were nowhere to be found. The discovery was made by Stephen Saltis, a butcher with a summer house in the area who was out for a walk with his dog. He found the remains only 15 feet from an intersection, indicating the body parts had been dumped by a motorist who quickly sped away. The torso was badly mutilated and decomposed. The innards had been removed and there was an additional wound in the center of her chest. The hands on the arms were mangled and the pads of the fingertips had been cut or carefully shaved off to make identification via fingerprint impossible. 
An autopsy revealed that the woman had been dead for about two weeks. In order to identify her without a head or fingerprints, Philadelphia's chief medical examiner, Dr. Aronson, had to turn to an unusual method. Based on the size of the torso and the recency of the disappearance, Dr. Aronson suspected that they had found the body of Dolores Della Pena. To make the connection more concrete, he took an X-ray of the torso's spine and compared it to an X-ray which had been taken of Dolores two years before her disappearance. The spines were a near match. And then there were the fingernails, painted a dark red in the same brand that Dolores had used to do touch-ups the day before she disappeared. On July 25th, three days after the torso and arms were found, Dr. Aronson said he felt sure that they had found the body of Dolores de la Pena. For police, there was no longer any doubt that Dolores de la Pena had been murdered. The investigation now began to search for the rest of Dolores' body. Police canvassed the New Jersey Pine Lands, where Jackson Township is located, but they were coming up empty. The Pine Lands are a massive area containing 1.1 million acres of land, so it's not entirely surprising that they were unable to find the missing body parts. While the search for the missing limbs wasn't going well, Dolores's friends, who had remained silent out of fear, now decided that it was time to speak to the police and the press. With these emergent testimonies, a new image of Dolores de la Pena emerged, one that suggested this pure and innocent teen was not so innocent after all. Coming up, we'll learn more about the hidden side of Dolores. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. 17-year-old Dolores Della Pena went missing from Northeast Philadelphia on July 11, 1972. Her torso and her arms had been found in Jackson Township, New Jersey, on July 22nd, 11 days after her disappearance. On July 27th and July 28th of 1972, the Philadelphia Daily News and Philadelphia Inquirer, respectively, each published an article about a darker side to Dolores De La Pena's private life. Both articles revealed that the Wildwood Crest apartment had become a hotbed for illicit drug use and drug trafficking. Given the criminal activity occurring in Dolores' apartment, police speculated that Dolores' murder was tied to the drug trade. The police decided to look deeper into Dolores' private life to see if she was personally involved, rather than simply being associated with drug trafficking by proximity. Their investigation led them to a street corner in the Kensington area of Philadelphia, which had a reputation for attracting teens who used drugs. Dolores had been seen on that corner the night she disappeared. Officers then spoke with some of the teens who hung out there. You say you saw Dolores on July 11th? Yeah, she was here. We've seen her around. You see her often? 
Not really, but we all knew her. She was nice, always had a smile on her face. A lot of us are really torn up about what happened to her. You ever do stuff with her? Snorting, smoking, huffing? No, we don't... She wasn't that type of girl. For the most part, Dolores' friends described her as straight-laced, although the police often received conflicting information. One of Dolores' friends suggested that Dolores smoked marijuana. Another one of her friends said that she didn't believe Dolores had ever used drugs of any kind. Her parents worried that these emerging stories would damage their daughter's reputation. Ralph was sure that there was no way she could have been using. Not only was she not the type, but Ralph would have noticed something was off when the family had been at Disney World. Based on her personality and the statement from most people who knew her and the police, it seemed likely that Dolores never got involved in the drug trade. However, her surroundings, the Wildwood Crest apartment and the Kensington area of Philadelphia, were far darker than her own behavior. One of Dolores's friends, who had spoken anonymously to the press, said that frightening people would stop by the apartment. Some of these frightening people were a firefighter who had been suspended for drug procurement, sale, and use of narcotics. A woman named V, who supposedly carried a supply of methadone, and a married man known as Rat, who seemed infatuated with Dolores. Both the firefighter and Rat had been questioned by police, but it seems neither of these men were considered suspects at the time. We don't know what led to police making that determination. Dolores's anonymous friend also said that there were kids who would come to the Shore apartment from Philadelphia who were awfully tough, real scary. Dolores's desire to leave the apartment made more sense given the frightening nature of her living environment. But if police put any suspects on their list after talking to Dolores's friends in Wildwood Crest and Kensington, they remained tight-lipped about their leads. However, something else soon got their attention. On July 29, 1972, one week after the discovery of Dolores's torso and arms, an elderly man taking his daily afternoon walk found something horrifying. How often do you walk around this area, sir? Just about every day, officer. There wasn't anything here yesterday. I would have noticed. Sir, we found something. I'll be right back. This better be the other leg. Yes, and I think the nails are painted red. Both legs were badly decomposed, but the toenail polish was a match. The legs belonged to Dolores Della Pena. The legs were found in a wooded area in Manchester Township, about eight miles from the torso and arms. They were also near a roadway, just like the torso and arms had been. Police suspected that after Dolores was butchered, her severed limbs had been tossed along the roadway through dense sections of the New Jersey Pine Barrens. The discovery of the legs, while important, didn't provide much in the way of new information regarding what happened to Dolores Della Pena before or after she went missing on July 11th. But a new lead would soon interest investigators. On July 31st, William Nicastro was arrested for an unrelated rape. William was related to one of Dolores' friends, one of the last people to see Dolores alive. William had been charged with rape, sodomy, and assault with the intent to kill in a July 24th assault of a 17-year-old girl from Kensington. 
Police said the rape victim also lived near the Kensington Corner, where Dolores and her friends hung out. William's arrest and criminal profile piqued the interest of detectives, and they questioned him about Dolores' murder on August 1st. However, after the questioning, police determined that William had nothing to do with Dolores' murder. Whatever their reasons, the police didn't share them with the press. While the investigation was making little headway, the discovery of her remains gave the family a chance to grieve. Dolores's remains were sent back to Philadelphia for a closed casket viewing which was held on August 3rd, 24 days after she'd gone missing. She had a white casket with a red ribbon across it from her parents, reading, Our Little Girl. She was laid to rest the following day. Two days after the funeral on August 5, 1972, police began circulating a flyer with their first description of the suspect and the car that had been seen by witnesses the night Dolores disappeared. Detectives got the description after questioning neighbors on Tulip and Rawl Streets where they believed Dolores was abducted, only one block away from the Della Pena's house. The suspect was a white male, 20 to 25 years old, 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10, and 160 pounds. He had brown, chin-length hair and bushy sideburns. They used an unusual method to figure out the make of the car by driving a witness around until she saw a similar model. That one. That's the color, exactly. That maroon one? Exactly. No way, it was night. There's no way you could tell it was maroon. It was the same color as my favorite dress. I remember thinking, I loved the color, hated the car. In the end, they settled on the car being a 1965 or 1968 Chevrolet sedan. One witness had seen a man who he claimed had been pretending to work on that car for up to an hour while he was waiting for Dolores. With this new information, the police were able to compile the stories of their witnesses, and the night of Dolores' disappearance became clearer. Dolores was grabbed from behind. She went limp almost immediately, which led police to believe she must have been struck with a blunt instrument or choked. The man then put Dolores in the back seat of the Chevrolet, closed the car's hood, and drove away. While the flyer was first released on August 5th, It's a little unclear at what point the police had uncovered the information presented. It seems like either a new or previous witness came forward and police released the description shortly after, but that's speculation on our part. Despite releasing the suspect's description, the police didn't make much headway. By August 27th, one of the Philadelphia homicide detectives on the case stated to a reporter that they were hitting one brick wall after another. The investigation was getting more difficult the longer the case dragged on. Investigators had already interviewed 1,526 people in relation to Dolores' murder. Despite this expansive legwork, the most solid lead they had was their description of the suspect and the car. And as the case dragged on, the Delapenas dealt with their grief. Both of the Delapenas were under the care of a doctor as they struggled to cope with the loss of their daughter. Helen, in particular, had difficulty with her well-being. She would often wake up in the middle of the night screaming. Doctors advised the family to move, and by 1977, they did, five years after their daughter's death. Though they could no longer stand to live in the house that they had shared with their daughter, 
they also needed something to remember her by. Helen couldn't bear to part with the room Dolores had loved in life. In their new home, they lovingly and carefully recreated Dolores' bedroom, her canopied bed with a clown and raccoon sitting on it, and a crucifix above the bed. Even Dolores' hairpins were on the bureau as she'd left them. As time kept passing, new leads in Dolores' case had all but dried up. Dolores' death had struck a chord in Philadelphia. She was a pretty young teenager with wide eyes and her whole life ahead of her. Her death was brutal, tragic, and scarring. The city mourned her passing until January 4, 1979, when the police got wind of a possible connection to Dolores' case. A man named John Egan had been released from a two-month prison stay on November 29, 1978. He had been arrested and detained for retail theft. After his release, he went on a bank robbery spree in Philadelphia, hitting three banks in the span of three weeks. Then, on January 4th, he decided to meet up with his old acquaintance, James Morrow. The two men went for a car ride, ending up in a steakhouse parking lot. Mmm, I can smell the steak already. Thanks for the lunch invite, John. John, you coming? Why did you do it, James? Do what? Dolores. What you did to her is despicable. I, I don't know any Dolores. Don't lie to me. Whoa, 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 John, put the gun down. I'm not lying. I don't, I don't think I know a Dolores, but if I do, I certainly haven't done anything to her. She told me what you did. She told me what she wants me to do to you. Calm down. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh, God. I need help. Please, I've been shot. James Morrow would not survive. However, as he was picked up by an ambulance, he managed to name John Egan as his murderer. Egan was arrested on January 5, 1979, the day after the murder. When questioned by police, Egan claimed to have killed Morrow in order to avenge Dolores' murder. John Egan had actually been questioned by the police about Dolores' murder in 1972. He said he didn't know anything and even submitted to a lie detector test, which he passed. Now, years after he was questioned, Egan claimed that Dolores' spirit had been speaking to him from the other side. Dolores' ghost had told Egan that James Morrow was her murderer. Of course, these claims seemed like the ramblings of a mentally unstable person. However, despite Egan's unhinged nature, Ralph De La Pena still hoped that this would lead to some information about what happened to his daughter. Because of this hope, police fully investigated John Egan and his claims. They discovered that this likely wasn't the first time Egan had mentioned Dolores. A source close to the investigation said that when Egan had been arrested for retail theft in September of 1978, he told police he had information on Dolores' murder. When the police told Egan they believed he was lying, Egan slashed his wrists while in a city hall detention cell. That sounds like either he did know something and no one was listening, or he was lying about having information in the hopes of making a deal. Or he was mentally disturbed. Egan's behavior was becoming increasingly erratic. Ultimately, police found no proof that James Morrow had anything to do with Dolores de la Pena. 
John Egan was judged not competent to stand trial and was committed to Holmesburg Prison's psychiatric unit. In 1980, John Egan escaped from Philadelphia State Hospital, also known as Byberry Mental Hospital, which was both infamous for its mistreatment of patients and purportedly haunted. We couldn't find any word on what happened to Egan after that. Because of the lack of suspects, investigators explored many leads over the next several years, however far-fetched they may have been. One detective briefly considered Ted Bundy as a suspect. Bundy admitted to murdering 30 women in the 1970s across at least seven states. And he had a connection to Philadelphia, since he had lived there for the first three years of his life. Plus, he had decapitated 12 of his victims and kept their heads as mementos. This could have explained why search teams couldn't find Dolores's head. But the timeline didn't quite line up. Ted Bundy graduated from the University of Washington in 1972 and then worked as a campaign aide for the re-election of Washington Governor Daniel J. Evans. Given that Ted Bundy was on the other side of the country at the time of Dolores' murder, it makes sense that the police quickly dropped that theory. Another person of interest was a man named Gary Heidnick, who'd been convicted of murder and various other crimes in July of 1988. Heidnick was the inspiration for Buffalo Bill from The Silence of the Lambs. In 1986, Heidnick had captured six African-American women and held them in his basement in West Philadelphia. He starved and sexually assaulted them until two of the six women died. When one of his victims died, Heidnick dismembered her. He also cooked parts of the victim to hide her corpse. Police were called to his house after getting reports of a terrible smell in the air. Somehow, Heidnick convinced them they were smelling a roast he'd burnt. Of course, this incident didn't happen until 14 years after Dolores' murder. Plus, Dolores was a young white woman, while all of Heidnick's victims were black. Dolores simply didn't fit his victim profile. Ultimately, there was no concrete evidence linking Dolores and Heidnick, so police didn't consider him a suspect for very long. They simply had to investigate every possible angle, just in case. And as time passed, by 1988, the head of the Homicide Division in Philadelphia begrudgingly listed Dolores de la Pena's case among 47 unsolved murder cases. The investigation had gone cold. And yet, it was only a matter of time before prison rumors started spreading, and investigators would soon get their first big break. Coming up, we'll discover how the investigation of Dolores de la Pena found new life after so many years. Now, back to the story. Dolores de la Pena was a 17-year-old who had been abducted and murdered on July 11, 1972. After thorough investigation, the case had gone cold and no leads were found for over 20 years. Investigators struggled to find who killed her. By the early 1990s, hope of finding the murderer was all but gone. Two decades is a very long time to live with an ugly secret. So I guess I will first offer that I was or am in no way directly responsible for your daughter's murder. The Pagans Club killed my own wife when she was 19 years old. So you see, Mr. De La Pena, we both have vested interests concerning this matter. 
I need to tell you that there was no reason for Dolores' death. And if I would have known ahead of time, I would have stopped it. This inmate was serving time for murder. He had been a national officer in the Pagans Motorcycle Club. The Pagans are a one-percenter motorcycle club. The term comes from a saying that 99% of motorcyclists were law-abiding citizens, leaving the other 1%. The Pagans are currently involved in criminal enterprises in Pittsburgh and Philadelphia and are primarily concerned with trafficking meth, cocaine, and PCP. We don't have the full letter from the Pagans Club member 2, Ralph De La Pena, but we do know he told Ralph that he hadn't been personally present for Dolores' murder. He had heard about Dolores' murder from other members in his gang. Soon after the letter was sent, police interviewed the inmate. Maybe this was a mistake. The guard said you had regrets, wrongs you wanted to right. Start making it right. Yeah, okay. Well, look, it was in my Pagan's Club days. I wasn't directly involved, but I lent my car to one of our other members. I didn't know what they were going to do with it. What did you see? Like I said, I wasn't there. I just know that they used my car that night, probably to help dispose of the body. A source would later tell the Philadelphia Daily News that the Pagans Motorcycle Club had offered to help get rid of Dolores' remains. We don't actually know if his car was the infamous maroon Chevy used in her abduction, and it's likely different cars were used at different points in the crime. Then on September 8, 1994, both the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News published articles about a prisoner at Greaterford Prison in Philadelphia who had been talking to police since 1992. He had told a guard his story, and the guard then told authorities. Though we don't know his identity, for simplicity's sake, we'll refer to this prisoner as Frank. Police investigated Frank's story for two years before accepting it had merit in 1994, which led to a grand jury convening to hear evidence in the case, including Frank's testimony. He talked about the night of July 11, 1972, when he had witnessed the beating of Dolores De La Pena in a garage in the Kensington area of Philadelphia. What happened the night you saw Dolores De La Pena? I was 16, but I remember it clear as day. I was dropping off a shipment of drugs to a garage in Kensington. You knew why she was there? Uh, one of the dealers told me later. He said that someone who knew Dolores in Wildwood Crest was holding drugs for him but those drugs went missing. So Dolores took the drugs? The guy I talked to said she didn't. Seemed like she went out of town and then the missing drugs got pinned on her. The dealers hadn't been paid and they thought it was her, so they took her. And you stayed silent all these years. I was 16, I was scared. I knew what those guys were capable of. With the help of Frank's testimony, police gained a more complete understanding of Dolores's murder. Dolores De La Pena was renting the apartment with three friends in Wildwoodcrest, New Jersey, where she was often interacting with drug users and drug dealers. Early in June 1972, a fight broke out at the apartment over the theft of drugs from one of Dolores' roommates. This roommate's boyfriend then confronted Dolores' friends from the Kensington section of Philadelphia. Because things were getting tense at the cottage, Dolores was eager to go to Disney World with her parents. While Dolores was gone, 
The blame for the missing drugs landed on her. She was likely just a convenient scapegoat because she was on vacation. While it's possible that Dolores had more involvement with the drug scene than her parents wanted to admit, she doesn't seem like the type of girl who would have stolen a cache of drugs. I think whoever did take the drugs was terrified of what would happen if they were found out and pinned the blame on Dolores in her absence. In any case, by the time Dolores returned to Philadelphia, it seemed that there were plans in place to teach the unsuspecting teenager a lesson. At least one of the drug dealers laid in wait to kidnap her. It's possible there could have been more than one because witness accounts on that vary, but we don't know how many for sure. One of the kidnappers had the hood of his car up, pretending to have mechanical problems. As Dolores walked by, he grabbed her. A few people reported hearing a scream at midnight, and witnesses had seen a woman being beaten less than 100 feet from the Della Pena house. And as we know, Ralph and Helen De La Pena were waiting up at that time as Dolores was expected home at midnight. Her mother said that when she hadn't returned, she had a premonition that her daughter wouldn't be coming back. Outside, not far from their house, Dolores was struck and thrown into the car. He drove away with her. The inmate, who we've been calling Frank, then dropped off a parcel of drugs at a garage in Kensington where he saw Dolores bound to an old car seat. Her hands were tied behind her, and blood and tears covered her face. Four drug dealers hovered around her, and one of them had a machete. (laughs) Please, I, I didn't do anything. That's what they all say. You took something that didn't belong to you. No, I didn't. I swear, you have to believe me. I don't have to do anything, sweetheart. Show her what's gonna happen to her. Yo, boss. Frank's here with the shipment. You want me to let him in with the girl here? Yeah, Frank's cool. Hey, I've got your... Oh. Hey, boss. Mind if I take a turn at scaring her a bit? Just remember not to go too far. Boss, you sure? He's high as a kite. Nah, man. I'm good. He has to learn the ropes. She's got to pay, right? I mean, she stole from you, boss. No one steals from you. Just calm down. You're gonna pay. Oh, no. No. What did you do? Calm down. I know how to take care of this. There's no way to know for sure, but this is the closest thing we have to an explanation of Dolores' murder. One of the four drug dealers around Dolores that night was strung out on LSD. He'd struck her in the arm with a machete and poked her in the chest, which explains the chest wound they found on the torso. However, there have been several variations on exactly what happened in that garage. Detectives said that the dealers had threatened to kill Dolores if she didn't have sex with them. Another source, close to the investigation, said that Dolores had indeed been sexually assaulted inside the garage and that it was an LSD party that had gone too far. The man who had been poking her then suddenly cut her head off with the machete. After she was decapitated, the men in the garage dismembered her and members of the pagan motorcycle gang offered to get rid of her remains. According to an article in July of 1996, police had said that Dolores was never supposed to be killed. She was only kidnapped to scare her into paying for the missing drugs. It was believed that she had been kidnapped over only $200. 
Another inmate who provided more information on this account claimed that Dolores' head had been wrapped in a plastic car seat cover and battery wire, then tossed into Dinosaur Lake in North Philadelphia. Also reported in July of 1996 was that a group of teenagers who'd been swimming in Dinosaur Lake in 1972 had seen a woman's head with long, dark hair sunk in the water. They tried to get it out with a stick, but they were unsuccessful. After they ran to tell the police, parts of the lake were drained, but nothing was ever found. The head has never been recovered. With all the information gained from Frank's testimony, police identified nine suspects in Dolores' murder. Two of the suspects were already in prison and serving long terms for other crimes. Four of the nine had died. Only three suspects were alive and living free. According to an article from July 12, 1996, two of Dolores' kidnappers were part of the Kensington and Allegheny gang. The K&A gang were primarily Irish-American thugs that had started out as burglars. As home security became more effective, burglary became less lucrative, and the gang turned to dealing meth. By 1983, Philadelphia was dubbed the meth capital of the world, and the K&A gang were partially responsible for that. The same source that gave the information about K&A gang suspects also revealed that one of the nine was in witness protection and another was a cousin of the Delapenas. Police wanted to arrest their suspects, but they couldn't act without an arrest warrant from the district attorney's office. The possibility of warrants being issued was raised in 1994, but no arrests were made and no news involving the investigation was made public until 1996. On July 10, 1996, a day shy of the 24th anniversary of Dolores' disappearance, news broke that authorities had asked for arrest warrants to be approved by District Attorney Lynn Abraham. D.A. Abraham said she had been studying the case, but more had to be done before she could issue warrants. The problem, according to D.A. Abraham, they were relying on testimony from inmates who juries would have a hard time believing. She did not further explain her reasoning. And if there were other problems preventing her from issuing the arrest warrants, the DA's office was remaining tight-lipped. Dolores' case was still an open investigation. Despite the DA's hesitancy, newspapers reported that arrests were imminent, and news crews descended on Ralph and Helen de la Pena, prying for their reaction. Since Ralph and Helen Della Pena had both been through disappointment after disappointment, it makes sense that they'd be cautious about their optimism. Nevertheless, Helen and Ralph spent the 24th anniversary of their daughter's disappearance hoping to get a call that arrest warrants had been issued. Unfortunately, the call never came. Despite justice not being served, police were convinced that they knew who Dolores' killers were. However... Those names have never been released. As of 2003, which is the last report we found about the case, the investigation was still open, but there still hadn't been any further developments. That year, D.A. Lynn Abraham said that she wasn't convinced that there was enough credible evidence to secure arrests and convictions. I'm sure it would have been very hard on the family to have had those suspects go through a trial and then discover there wasn't enough evidence to convict them. 
Ralph and Helen Della Pena had feared that they would die before seeing justice served for their daughter. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. Ralph passed away in 2004 at age 79, and Helen was 88 when she died in 2015. The justice Dolores de la Pena deserved would forever remain elusive, and the names of her killers are hidden behind the curtains of legal procedure. Dolores was a good girl with her whole life ahead of her, and it was tragically cut short. So who killed Dolores de la Pena? While we don't have any specific names, it seems most likely that she was killed by the nine suspects known only to the police. The K&A gang and the Pagans Club colluded in her abduction and killing. While many other theories have been investigated, I have to agree. I think Dolores de la Pena's death was the result of tragedy after tragedy. A misunderstanding led to her kidnapping, A small sum of money led to her beating, and a whacked-out gang member accidentally killed her. And as three of these suspected killers walk free, the mystery surrounding Dolores' brutal murder will likely haunt the city of Philadelphia forever. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast, and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time... Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Cara Costello Alley and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. Unsolved Murders.